0: Let's take our Bibles, if you were, to turn with me to Acts chapter number 2. In Acts chapter number 2, we are interested in the first century church, and what we want to do is we want to get a clear picture as to what the church looks like, because if we don't have a clear picture, then we do not, we do not know what we need to be ourselves. And so, in Acts chapter number 2, we find what happened to this group of people, and again, this group of people were, just days before, had shouted, crucify Him, crucify Him. And now these same people have been changed by the power of the gospel, uh, by the conviction of the Spirit of God. They've uh, received the word, they've been baptized, and they've been added to the church, and a wonderful transformation has taken place in their lives, and we find uh, immediately what they were involved in. Now, notice Acts 2 verse 37 And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And here is what the Bible says they did. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread Should be saved. I would like to draw your attention to the last uh, spiritual activity mentioned in verse 42. We've dealt with the first three. The last one is mentioned is that they continued steadfastly in prayers. And so I would like to preach a message entitled Continuing Steadfastly in Prayers. Now, as we are approaching our text, we have asked ourselves this question, and I've repeated this question every time. And that is this, are we like the believers described in the book of Acts? I think ultimately we have to ask ourselves that question. Uh, We think about the activity of this church. What is it that we are engaging in? What is the spiritual activity that defines the church? Well, we know what defined the first century church. And so it is clear that there must be an alignment in our church to make sure that those things are indeed what we are partaking in. Now, many uh, popular writers and bloggers and preachers and teachers make constant suggestions on how the uh, church can survive in the 21st century. And a common appeal is that for the church uh, to be able to survive during this time, the experts will cry and uh, call for a an alignment to take place that is geared and adjusted to the 21st century culture. And they call this, as many have, an alignment. There has to be an alignment that needs to take place in the church if the church is going to survive in the 21st century. And what they say is there is kind of the old way of doing things and that that needs to be done away and we need to bring something new. Uh, If there is, as I mentioned, any alignment that needs to take place, it is an alignment... To the Word of God. Uh, what the church needs in the 21st century is not to become relevant to the culture. A true church will never be relevant to the culture. Uh, but a revival back to the Scriptures is what we need. The church will always make a fool of herself by trying to impress the culture. Uh, we are not commanded to be fools for the culture. We are commanded to be fools for Christ. And we find in our text a A clear picture of what the early church was like. This picture brings us to the place where we must ask ourselves, what has happened to the church? Uh, Why has the church become enamored with the things of the world? Why are Christians not interested in what the Bible has to say about the church? Why are preachers paying so little attention to God's design for the church? Now in Acts 2.42, we find... Four distinct activities that the church was engaging in, and we have examined the first three. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and by the way, doctrine is always where we begin. They continued steadfastly in fellowship, and we looked at that. That is beyond just coming to church, shaking hands, and leaving. That's not fellowship. It's beyond that. And also, they continued in breaking of bread. Now we come to the fourth spiritual activity in the church, and those are each distinct activities, but also I believe they build on one another, and they all have their impact on the church. We talked about how the doctrine strengthens and settles the believer. We said that fellowship encourages the believer. We talked about how the breaking of bread humbles the believer. Uh, Now we're looking at the continued in prayer, and I would say that that helped the church remain dependable, or dependent, I should say, on the power and the Spirit of God. We must get a clear picture of the New Testament church, and the fourth priority we find is that they continued steadfastly in prayer. Now, I want to ask this again because I believe it's important based upon their activity, and that is this question is, what happened to these people uh, what did the gospel do for them? What did the gospel do in them? And I think that the impact is immediate because the activities that we see that they're involved in, particularly in verse 42 and all the subsequent verses after that, and what we see throughout the book of Acts is completely different than the activities that they were involved in before their salvation. As a matter of fact, they could not be any different. These were the people that had cried about the Lord crucify Him, and now these are the same exact people who are calling on the same name, but yet asking for His help. So something must have happened to these people to get to this place. There are really two areas in our life that are addressed by the Gospel. First, the Gospel determines our eternity in the face of our inevitable death. But second, the Gospel determines our life while we are in the world. And what I mean by that is the gospel, yes, secures our eternity, but it also changes our life. Uh, every man must first be prepared for his death, we understand that, because he can do nothing about it afterwards. Furthermore, every man must consider how to live until he gets there. These people here were certainly saved, that's clear. But something else happened to them at their salvation. Uh, Not only were these people redeemed, but they were also redirected in their lives on earth. There was an adjustment that took place, if you would, an alignment. Their lives aligned themselves to a different standard that they did not have before their salvation. A drastic change had taken place in their lives. Uh, They were now living for something, or we should say for someone else. Perhaps we could say before they were living for themselves, but now they're living for the Lord. Now that is a wonderful message in the gospel. And by the way, when we uh, preach the gospel, we should not just say, yes, it will save you from your sin, but we could also say it will change your life. You see, the gospel is the message of the propitiation of Christ for our sins, but also the gospel also gives the believer a purpose, a new purpose in this life. You see, they were involved in continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now, immediately I'm overwhelmed by the subject of prayer. And as a matter of fact, as I came to this, it seems that uh, perhaps the, the narrowness of the other subjects, this seems to be a very broad subject, the subject of prayer. Uh, the subject is beyond the scope of what can be addressed in one sermon. As a matter of fact, I think uh, last year or the year before, I did a whole series of 20 or 30-some messages on the subject of prayer. Uh, And it is important, therefore, that we set some important parameters in addressing this spiritual activity that we find in the church. So, let me set some parameters so that we narrow uh, the subject of prayer. First of all, I want us to confine our study of their praying to the corporate praying that takes place when the church gathers. Because that is obviously the context of what we find here in Acts chapter number 2. It is certain that we must all be involved in personal praying, and I hope we all are. But we will, we will not address that in this sermon. I will greatly shorten this message if we narrow the scope of this activity. And second, we will consider the instances when the church is found to be praying in the book of Acts. How did the church conduct their prayer time? When did believers in the church conduct their prayer time? How did the believers in the church pray? And third, we will make a number of conclusions about this spiritual activity. What does this spiritual activity reveal about this church? And if praying is lacking in a church today, what does that tell us about that church? Uh, One preacher put it this way He said, Prayer is the best test of a church, a church can be flourishing. She can be successful in terms of organization. She can be tremendously active and appear to be prosperous. But if you want to know whether she is a real church or not, examine the amount of prayer that takes place. Prayer is the inevitable conclusion of true doctrine. The first Christians started with the apostles' doctrine and it led them to prayer. So notice first of all, if you're taking notes, I want to consider the place of prayer. In verse 42, the Bible says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. So before we consider the place of prayer, I want us to reject a common notion about prayer in general. There is a common practice that is seen in many churches around the world that is, I believe, unbiblical. It is the practice of mindlessly repeating some prayer that has been uh, formulated by some church. This is not a practice that is found in Scripture. Indeed, it goes against Scripture. Jesus Himself in Matthew 6 verse 7 says, But when ye pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. So our Lord Jesus called uh, vain repetition a heathen practice. Not a scriptural one. Uh, you see, prayer is not, uh, does not mean saying prayers that are generically formulated by the church. You can get on your knees before you go to bed at night and rush through the Lord's prayer and utter every word correctly without having prayed at all. Do we understand that? That we can find any type of formula and recite that formula, but we understand that is not prayer. Someone will say, well, I was troubled about something, so I I said my prayers, and then I felt better. And what they mean by that is there was some formula or some text or a group of words that they put together that they were taught, and they say those words, and they feel better. Uh, We must be clear about the matter of prayer. Saying a prayer is not praying. Uh, The believers in Acts did not come together ever to read some written prayers. They did not come together to recite some prescribed prayer. They did not have any such formula to follow. Rather, we say this. They were filled with the Spirit, and they prayed unrehearsed and spontaneously. That's the pattern we find in the Scriptures. They prayed unrehearsed and spontaneously. Some religion will even instruct their people when they're going through a difficult time, well, recite this prayer five times. Or say this, Hail Mary. Or do your rosary. What they mean by that is there's a formula of prescribed words that you say, and if you say those things five times, or ten times, or twelve times, or a hundred times, then you will feel better. That is not praying. You do not find that practice in the Word of God. So, We find that the church prayed unrehearsed spontaneously. Now consider a number of examples of um, the church in Acts. The first one is found in the first chapter, which we've already examined, but I want you to notice the unrehearsed and spontaneous nature of their praying. In the first chapter, Acts 1, notice verse 24. Now again here, we find that the believers were faced with a task of replacing Judas, who had betrayed Jesus Christ at the prospect of this immense responsibility, they responded, verse 24, and they prayed, and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these thou hast chosen. That's not a formula. That was, here is a problem. We want to make the right decision, and so we must pray. It was unrehearsed, and it was spontaneous. And please note That they did not say the rosary. There was no such thing. They prayed spontaneously and unrehearsed. If we go to chapter number four, let's look at another example in chapter number four. In this uh, instance, in verse number 23, we see that Peter and John had been commanded by the religious authorities not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And they were further threatened, according to the Bible before they were let go. And notice their response, Acts chapter 4, uh, let's see here, verse number 23. So after this threat, their command not to speak and to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. Now, I think it's interesting, you see that community, that fellowship, it was automatic for them. Something happened in the life of the preaching and the teaching in Jerusalem. They were threatened, and the first impulse was to go and gather with the church. That's where they went. They didn't go and lock themselves in their house and say, Oh, what are we going to do now? They went to the church, and they rehearsed everything that had taken place. Why? Why did they do that? Well, we see why. Notice verse 24. And when they heard that, now who's the they? That's the church that they had gathered together when they heard that. Notice, it was not Peter and the the apostles, if you would, that were thinking to themselves, Oh, well, here's this threat, Uh, let's be be praying. No, the people in the church, when they heard those threats, they lifted up their voice to God. You see what that is? That is unrehearsed and spontaneous praying. Um, Notice what the prayer said. They lifted up their voice to God and with one accord. Now notice, they, plural. It was not uh, one person praying. They all lifted up their voice in one accord and said, Lord, thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus whom thou hast anointed Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name name of thy holy child Jesus." You see, this is clear again. It was spontaneous, unrehearsed praying. How foolish to think that these believers read from some pre-written formula. And so we find here that the place of prayer, what I mean by that is as we see the pattern in Scripture, something happened, they automatically went to this time of prayer. You see, it was spontaneous. Let's look at another example, Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the believers in the church came to the disciples, remember, to inform them that the widows had been neglected in the daily ministration. So the disciples called on the believers to look for seven men to take care of this ministration, this ministry, if you would, this service. And in Acts chapter 6, notice verse number 6. He says, choose you out among the seven men, verse 5, then in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, so after the church selected a group of men to be the deacons, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. You see what happened there? They prayed spontaneously unrehearsed. They did not repeat some mindless formulated prayer. Uh, There was this issue. They uh, found uh, the the deacons, and the, the, the impulse, if you would, was to pray. In other words, when we think about the place of prayer in the church, it seems to have a place in every aspect of the church. When they made a decision to find a new disciple, when they were threatened and said not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, when they were going to elect deacons. Uh, well, Let's look at another example in chapter 13, in Acts chapter number 13. A few pages to your right in um Here, uh, again, the church at Antioch was ready to send the first missionary, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, This was an important time. The Holy Ghost had called these two men to take a journey to accomplish the work of the Lord. And when faced with this important task, uh, notice what happens. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church that was in Antioch uh, certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menain, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And so this is quite a, uh, this is a, the moving of God. Uh, God, the Holy Ghost was moving, the church was recognizing uh, the calling of Paul and Barnabas to go and to do the work of the Lord. And notice verse 3, uh, what is the, uh, how, 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 how do they deal with the situation? And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. Uh, you see, again, here, this is clear. It was spontaneous, unrehearsed praying. They're about to send the first missionaries to go and evangelize city after city after city. And so in light of this big task, this big responsibility, this work of the Lord that they have been called to do, the instinctive that they have is to pray. So I think that there's no doubt when we look at the first century church, when we read in Acts 2.42 that they continued steadfastly in prayer, I think we notice the place of prayer in the church. It had a clear, it was a dominating aspect of the activity of the church. So the prayer meeting should not be the least attended meeting, it should be attended by all, the place of prayer. But then we think, as we consider the subject that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' prayer, I want us to consider the priority in their praying. And what I mean by that is, what is the contents of their prayer? What is it it they prayed for? What was found in their prayer? In one of the examples that we considered earlier, uh, we uh, read the response of the believers when they were told not to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to Acts chapter number 4, and let's look at what did they prioritize in their prayers themselves? What was emphasized in their praying? And I think that we can learn something uh, in their praying, notice Acts chapter four, verse twenty-four. Again, in light of the the fact that they had been told not to teach, to preach in the name of Jesus, uh, they had been threatened. So now they're in this place that they respond by praying, and notice they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, "So this is their prayer." You ready? This is the pri- what is the priority in their prayer, Lord? Thou art God. Now, I want you to see, it's not immediately as they pray, Oh, God, we we need you to intervene. Could you please take these people out of the way? Could you please? That's not how they begin the praying. They begin their prayer by saying, Where am I? I lost my place. Verse 24. Notice, they lift up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Uh, For of a truth against thy holy child, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So you see what they say, they they pray and their focus is on God. And what they do in their praying, they go back in history and they say, you know what, this idea that we are threatened is not something new to to the people of God. As a matter of fact, it is true of all God's people throughout history. David wrote about it. We know that Jesus Christ suffered it. And so here when we face this opposition to the work of the Lord, it is not anything new. There are really two main priorities in their praying. And and here is really what I want us to think about What is it that they prioritize in their prayer? There are two main priorities. If we are going to be like the first century church, not only praying, but how do we pray, it is imperative that we examine their praying. We will certainly revisit this prayer as we work our way through the book of Acts. So I'm not going to belabor this passage because we're going to revisit again. Uh, But uh, for now, I would like to take note of the two main elements of their prayer. And they are this. Adoration. And supplication. Now, a lot of things fit within those two things. But the first one is adoration. That's how their prayer began. What did they do in their praying? They talked about God. They said, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. Not just now as we face our circumstances down. We are reminding ourselves of what you've done through history and how you, God, has been faithful. And there's really two things that they focus on in this adoration. They focus first on God's omnipotence. The fact that God is all-powerful. Right? They remind themselves He is the creator of the universe. And certainly, His creatures cannot thwart His power. So they remind themselves of who God is. Who who, who is He? What has He done? They also focus on the second thing in this adoration on God's omniscience. The fact that God is all-knowing. The fact that, uh, you remember what David prophesied about Christ. David mentioned that and it happened. And look, God, he says, if you uh, no, notice with me in verse 28, he says, for to do what's over thy hand, and thy counsel determined before to be done. And so then they said, now Lord, verse 29, behold, they're threatening. In other words, they're saying, God, you're not surprised by this. This is not a shock to you. This is something that was predicted. And so what they, instead of being consumed with this, uh, the threats, they say, This is something predicted. This is something God knows. God said this would happen. And it is happening now. And so the first element or priority in their praying is their adoration. Now I think we must pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, how much adoration actually takes place in our praying? You see, adoration is not just something that we should do in our songs. It is something that should be done in our prayers. And I believe that if adoration first takes place in our prayers, it will guide our prayers in the right direction. Without which, without adoration, we I think we tend to waver in our praying. The first part, if you would, the first priority of their praying is their adoration, but then there is supplication. Now I want you to notice right off the bat. Verse 29, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servant that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth on hand to heal, then that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Now, it is interesting to note that the adoration is much longer than the supplication. Did you notice that? The adoration goes from verse 24 down to verse number 28, and the supplication is verse 28 and 29. So the supplication is very small, very short in comparison to the adoration. And I think we have a message right there. What is it that we like to focus on? What is it that we, in our flesh, tend to focus on? I'll tell you what, the threats. The circumstances. That's what we tend to focus on. And what prayer does is there has to be an adjustment that takes place in our lives where we take our eyes off of the threats and place our eyes on the Lord and who He is. Because when we're engulfed in the threats, engulfed in the circumstances, then uh, we, it clouds our prayers. But when we focus on God, it, it, it clears things. The, the fog is dissipated. And we things, we see things clearly once again. Now, notice they say, Lord, and this is kind of uh, a after they adore God, after they recount that God is omnipotent, He is omnipresent, He is omniscient. Then they say, Lord, behold their threatenings. It's almost like, God, look at this. This is what we know about You, and look at this. Look at what they've said. They think they can shut God off. Look at this. You see, their supplication is directly linked to their adoration. They said, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness that they may speak thy word. And notice here, but here, here's, here's the key. They said, look, we grant unto us that which we need to speak boldly. Notice verse 29. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. <laughs> and signs and wonders may be done by, in the name of thy holy child Jesus. So you see, even the supplication is now focused on them. They are saying, God, grant us boldness because we want you to work in the lives of people. We want your hand to be actively at work. We don't want to be shut up by our circumstances. We want you to grant to us boldness so that you, God, can work. Not, hey, grant us boldness so that we can impress the crowd. No, grant us boldness so that you, God, can work through us. That was the priority of their praying. You see... Their request is only asked after having declared God's omnipotence and God's omniscience. So those are the two priorities of the praying of the church in the book of Acts. Adoration, supplication, and those are linked and they must not be separated. But there's another thing that I want us to consider. Not only do we see the place of their praying, the priority in their praying, but thirdly, we see the perspective of their prayers. What can we learn from these believers? Or what does their praying say about them? And we should ask ourselves then in retrospect, what does a lack of praying say about us? Well, what does this communicate? Well, Uh, There's a number of things that I would like to uh, point out. What does that tell us about these believers? First of all, this is the perspective on their prayer. This is what we learn. We learn that they were a discerning people. They were a discerning people. Now you say, well, what, what, what do you mean by that? What do we mean they were discerning people because of this? It seems that prayer is always the first response of the church when the church is challenged. Prayer is always the first response of the church when the church has been challenged. So what does that tell us about the believers? Uh, in other words, do you see here, it's not that when we read through the book of Acts, the instances when they prayed, it's not that God came down from heaven and said, All right now, you see the challenge, you pray. They already did that. They already knew that that was supposed to be done. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that they were a discerning people. You see, they were dependent upon God. They, they, they could not do what they needed to do on them, uh, by themselves. Remember, in the first chapter, they were supposed to wait for the Holy Ghost to come down before they went out and reached the world with the gospel. Why? Because He communicated to them that you can't do this alone. And so what that tells us about the church and the believers is that they were a discerning people. And so if we cease to pray, and if a church thinks that prayer is irrelevant, then the people have ceased to be a discerning people. They don't know what they do. They think that the work of God is dependent upon them, and it is not. So they were a discerning people. That's what we learn about that. But then number two, they were also a a dependent people. Uh, That's... The whole idea of prayer. The whole idea of prayer is that you're depending on God. You're not depending on yourself. Uh, Praying is the declaration that we need God. That we can do nothing without Him. That's what prayer itself is. So if we don't pray at all, what we are saying by not praying is that we don't need God. We can do this ministry and this church thing without God. And how foolish for us to think of that that way. Now, why did they pray? It was because they realized their need. When people come, become Christians, clearly as these people did, they become humble automatically. This is what had happened to these people. Remember, they were pricked to the heart. Before that point, they had stood in confidence, right? They were the ones that had shouted in confidence, away with Him, crucify Him. But under their preaching of the Apostle Peter, they were brought low and they saw the fools that they had been. That humility is the exact opposite of self-confident men and women who stand on their own feet and are sure that they know what they are doing. They do not pray. Why not? Because they do not need help. They can do it all themselves. And the testimony of the first century church is not only that they were a discerning people, but also it is that they were a dependent people. Completely dependent upon the Lord. Well, that's a sign of weakness. No, that is a sign of strength. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I believe it communicates a third thing about those believers. Not only were they a discerning people, they were a dependent people. But thirdly, they were a devoted people. You see, this praying shows the intensity of their spiritual condition. That they were not just, uh, hey, we're saved, so now we can do what we want. That was not such people. They, 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 the moment they were saved, baptized, added to the church, they continued steadfastly. That's the emphasis. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. They continued steadfastly in, bre- in breaking of bread. They continued steadfastly in prayer. And we observe that through the book of Acts. So that, What does that tell us? They were a devoted people. They were all about God. You know when they got together what they talked about? Can you imagine? I'll tell you what they talked about. They talked about the Lord. How do we know that? Because we know their immediate response when threatened is to talk about the Lord. And to recount who the Lord is. If you go with me to Hebrews chapter number 10. uh, The believers there, the uh, Jewish Christians who had been converted to Christ were... Facing intense persecution, in in, in Hebrews chapter number 10, if we go to verse number 19, he talks about how we have an access into the holy of holies by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way. And he talks about this access that we have in prayer, verse 19 of Hebrews 10. He says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a pure heart full in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Now, now, do you see here, this is what... Now, remember these people that we find in Acts before we reach, I guess... Acts 13, when we deal with Antioch and a church that is composed of Gentiles, up to this point, uh, the church has been mainly composed of Jews who had been converted to Christianity, who had turned to Christ. And so these Jews, think about what, where they were before being Christians. Do you remember what they did to find commune with God? Well, yes, they would bring their sacrifice to the priests. And the priest would offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. And that's something that they had to do on a continual basis. They kept doing that over and over again. And guess what? Somebody interceded for them. And we also know that once a year, uh, the high priest who was only supposed to go into, the only person that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, into, if you would, the Third step within the temple or in the tabernacle. He was to offer once a year an atonement for the sins of the people. He could not enter into the Holy of Holies without first of all having his vesture sprinkled with blood. And that is was to communicate that he was not worthy to enter into the Holy of Holies, but he was to do that once a year for the sins of the people, nobody came into the presence of God. And that's what the Holy of Holies represented. It was the presence of God. If any man, apart from the high priest, once a year when he was instructed to, was found to be in the Holy of Holies, he was stricken to death. Nobody could go there. Nobody had access to come to the presence of God. And so when you find a group of people who are continuing steadfastly in prayers, I tell you, they were a devoted people because of what they were before. They never had access to God. They could never pray to God and be heard of God. They always had to go through some priest, through some high priest, through someone who was, if you would, an intermediator between them and God to communicate to God. But we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible says the the Veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. In other words, man now has been allowed because of what Jesus Christ has done through His blood and through His atoning sacrifice. Now man has boldness that he never had before to enter into the presence of God. So as Jews, do we not think that these people would be so excited and so devoted that they would have that privilege to enter into the presence of God and be heard? That was not something they had before. No wonder they continued steadfastly in in, in prayer. No wonder they couldn't wait to gather the church together and to pray. They didn't have to come to someone and say, Hey, could you pray for me? Could you make an atonement for me? No. The moment they sinned against God, the moment they needed God's help, they say, Oh God, would you help me? In any place, anywhere, in any circumstances, they could come into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. It's a new, as Hebrews 10 puts it, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, we, they, they used to not be allowed to come into the presence of God. Why? Because they were not worthy. They knew that their sacrifices could not take away their sins. But now, through the sacrifice of Christ, they know that their sins have been washed away completely. And so by this new and living way, why would they not run to God? Well, in the same way, why would we not run to God? Why would we think prayer to be such a practice that we would want to have no part in it? You see, I think that what we learn about these people in the perspective of their prayers is that they were first a discerning people, they were a dependent people, and they were a devoted people. And so may the Lord uh, adjust our lives. May there be an alignment. Remember, I was reading this record this week on a, on a, a preacher who was kind of recounting a testimony of a young man in England who had. Uh, taken to church as a a young preacher and he was emphasizing prayer and prayer and this this was in the early 1900s and he was trying to get back to the church praying faithfully. Not just once a week, but several times during the week and guess what? The church didn't like it. And so the young preacher came to the old preacher and they said, the church just pushed me out, they drove me out. And the older preacher said, well, why did they do that? And the young preacher replied and says, well, they wanted to have a, social gathering on Wednesday instead of a prayer meeting. And he refused to have a social. He wanted to have the prayer meeting. But the people thought to themselves, that was in the early 1900s. We have to do something new. If you want to bring people in, you have to stop with the prayer and start with the socials. And so they pushed the preacher out. Why? A church lost this right perspective about the place of prayer in the church. And so may the Lord help us to see the place of prayer, the priority in their praying, but also the perspective it gives us about these people. And may the Lord use those truths to help us to to get to the place where we are continuing steadfastly in prayers. And so may the Lord help us with that. And may we see the value, the privilege, the opportunity of what it communicates. So doctrine strengthens and settles us. Fellowship encourages us. Breaking of bread humbles us. And prayer shows that we are dependent on the Lord. And so may the Lord help us with those truths as we observe in the church.